the Coptic Magical Papyri Podcast. Dear listeners, welcome to our 11th podcast. Today I sat down with David Frankfurter to talk about ancient magic. David Frankfurter is a scholar of ancient Mediterranean religions with specialties in Jewish and Christian apocalyptic literature, magical texts, popular religion, and Egypt in the Roman and late Antique periods. Frankfurter's particular interests revolve around theoretical issues like the place of magic in religion, the relationship of religion and violence, the nature of Christianization, and the representation of evil in culture. David Frankfurter earned his bachelor degree in religion from Wesleyan University, Master of Theological Studies degree from Harvard Divinity School, and Master's as well as PhD degree from Princeton University. Currently, David Frankfurter holds the William Goodwin Aurelia Chair of the Appreciation of Scripture at Boston University. His publications include uh, Elijah in Upper Egypt, based on his doctoral thesis and published in 1993, discussing an unusual early Christian prophecy that envisioned the end times uh, in Egyptian terms. In 1998, um, he published a book, a Religion in Roman Egypt, Assimilation and Resistance, which shows the different ways Egyptian religion continued despite the decline of temples and rise of Christianity. Evil incarnates rumors of demonic conspiracy and satanic abuse in history, published in 2006, discusses the ways that cultures and religious movements envision evil as an active personified force. So far, his last book, Christianizing Egypt, published in 2017, focuses on questions of syncretism. Our listeners also can be familiar with David Frankfurter as the editor of the monumental Guide to the Study of Ancient Magic, which appeared only three years ago. So I hope you are going to enjoy today's podcast. Hello, David. Thanks very much for being here. Sure. So my first question is very obvious, but uh, important. What is magic? And the second one is, what is its place in your research? Well, uh, Marketa, that's, of course, the big question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> when I use the term magic, I'm using it to describe an aspect of of uh, culture, material culture, human gestural interaction with material culture, where the interest in people is to draw out the agencies and powers in materials. So the agencies and powers in gemstones, in papyrus, in the written word, in images like uh, small clay figurines. And I'm also I also uh, when I think about magic, it's also the magic of of the spoken word, the magic of uh, of liturgical or or quasi liturgical language. Uh, certain kinds of prayers, names, quotations from scripture, sounds, that kind of thing. So I, I, um, I don't really like strict definitions of magic or approaches to magic where one thing is magic and one thing is not magic. Um, I think a ma- magic is, is a, a quality of most texts and most religious language and most folk rhymes and charms. So I see it in a lot of different aspects of culture. Its place in my own research is 
has uh, always been central. Um, I started in apocalyptic literature, and then I started getting interested in Coptic magical texts when I was a graduate student and became more and more interested in the kinds of materials that fall under the general rubric of magic, um, certain types of spells, power of the written word. And so it's really been a quite central part of my work. And uh, I've been moving from magic into a more general category, which is the materiality of religion. And so uh, it al- th- thinking about materiality allows me not to use the word magic all the time, but to think about other words. Um, the Coptic Magical Papyri Project based in Würzburg is not the first project uh, centered around Christian magic in Egypt. Uh, Marvin Mayer ran a similar project at Claremont University during the 1990s. Um, and my question is, have you been involved in this project? And can you share any memories of what magic studies looked like in, in the 1990s? Yes, um, uh, I, I joined that that project at an early stage, I would say probably in about 1980, uh, probably about 1988, because that's when we uh, were, were going to Uh, looking at the manuscripts, for example, of the London Hay texts. That particular project was, uh, the people who joined it were mostly people who'd worked on Nag Hammadi literature. And and I guess they were looking for another corpus of materials to to study. Um, But for that reason, they had, I would say, a somewhat more theological approach to Coptic magical texts. They were interested in in the the overlaps between many Coptic magical texts and uh, Gnosticism. And not all of the Coptic magical texts that are in ancient Christian magic really uh, support that overlap. So I think people, I don't know, they kind of wandered away after a while. Um, the people that that Marvin drew around him were uh, classicists like Chris Ferroni and Hank for Snell. Um, just trying to trying to think about the people who who were at the early conferences. Much of much of this project revolved around two conferences, one in Lawrence, Kansas, that uh, was published as Ancient Magic and Ritual Power, mm-hmm. and the other that was in um, Orange, California, uh, called um, Magic and Ritual in the Ancient World. And uh, let's say if R- Fritz Graf was part of it, uh, the Egyptologist Robert Rittner. Um, uh, Marvin drew scholars who were interested in magic from all over the place. And I think one of the things that we found is that uh, a real uh, need to figure out what we're talking about with magic um, it was easy to talk in terms of, of uh, it was easy to talk in terms of figurines and in terms of, of amulets and curses, but people weren't really addressing the overlaps with uh, religious practices. That that came more with uh, Roy Katansky's work and and uh, after after the the Coptic Magical pro- Project. So those are my memories. How do we deal without the internet? Um, we <laughs> uh, 
we went over to look at the actual manuscripts. I'm talking about the London Hay thing. You know, you make an appointment at the museum and you look at the text and you realize it's on leather and it's fading as uh, completely unreadable. So you need a an infrared photograph, which they have. And then we use the telephone. We would we would talk to each other for hours on end, trying to figure out what a word was in a manuscript. And uh, there was a lot of use of email, but we didn't really have uh, Internet so much. It's very interesting. So I'm trying to imagine it. So you would call each other and discuss the problems. Yeah. You would write emails uh, and then you would meet at conferences, I guess, or every once in a while, maybe meet in person. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah. So let's now let's turn now to the ancient Christian magic. So which you already mentioned and which is one of the most important publications for the studies of Coptic magic. And it was edited by Meyer and Smith and published in 1994. And you have also contributed to this publication. And my question is, what was Myron Smith's vision for the book? And what changed in ancient uh, magic studies when the book came out? Well, I think ancient Christian magic came out on the heels of Betz's uh, Greek magical papyri. Um, and I would say that Betz's, Betz's translation from Chicago was the real groundbreaking book uh, translation project in the study of magic and it brought many more students into the topic uh, people who just didn't have access to uh, prize and dance and and so also with with ancient christian magic um, there's a really uh, uh, i have to say crop is a wonderful book a uh, three volume book um, interesting translations he's got such a sense of of the meaning and the culture of 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 uh, these texts, but um, in America, especially, not a lot of people are going to just pick up a German book and read it and be inspired by it. So, ancient Christian magic filled that uh, filled that that hole, and of course, brought a lot more people into the topic. I have to tell you a funny story about ancient Christian magic, which was very much the title imposed by HarperCollins Press. We thought uh, when we were thinking about this title, uh, Marvin really wanted the title uh, Christian Texts of Ritual Power. Um, we thought that it would be a wonderful crossover book between uh, the Christian market, the Christian evangelical market, and the uh, occult New Age market, which would really like magic. And so we thought, oh, man, we're going to sell so many copies of this book because it's going to activate, you know, Christians are going to want it and, uh, and occultists are going to want it. Well, in fact, when I was going into bookstores soon after it came out, I, w I went into um, not Christian bookstores, but occult esoteric bookstores and they often did not carry the book because of the word christian and then i realized the christian bookstores are not going to carry the book because it has magic in the title so i think we kind of shot both of those markets we really didn't get um you can find greek magical papyri in translation the bets book in occult bookstores but you're not going to find uh ancient christian magic so often yeah, I had no, no idea. Uh, just an additional question that just came to my mind. So 
why haven't you added um, additions or you know Coptic and Greek into ancient Christian magic? Was it yeah? What was the reason? Oh well, that would have made the most people don't read Coptic, and Harper Collins wouldn't have been interested in it. There are a few texts from the Yale University collection that Steve Emmel uh, mm-hmm. translated, and he also did editions of them. So in the very back, there's there's um, some Coptic texts, um, but uh, we didn't feel the need to um, uh, re-edit things that are uh, perfectly well uh, edited in Belts, Walter Belts's editions or Krop's editions or, you know, we, we, when we were translating, we would go, go over the manuscripts ourselves, but, but really Krop's was quite good. We were able mm-hmm. to notice just a few extra words and Belts is very good. I think most of the people who did translations looked at, uh, actual manuscripture had access to the photographs but but not we didn't do uh, re-editions no mm-hmm. yeah i guess the focus of the book was just different right it was just to make these texts accessible to a wide audience exactly yeah i understand that you have written about the process of christianization in egypt and uh, which term would you use to designate pre-christian traditions would you say pagan would you say heathen would you use another term or is this even important Well, it is important because um, most scholars um, who are not in religious studies or even some in religious studies um, tend to automatically use the word pagan. And it's very much a Christian term. And when you call something pagan, you might think you're just being uh, taking the easy way out and uh, you You don't like the term, but it's the only word you have. But what happens is that people start thinking about pagans according to Christian stereotypes and according to uh, classic 19th century images of pagans and their sacrifices and their multiple gods and all kinds of other stereotypes. So I have been very, very adamant against the use of the word pagan. Even, Even scholars who I know who who don't harbor these prejudices, they tend to fall into this language, these kinds of of stereotypes pretty quickly. When I'm talking about the image of traditional Egyptian religion in Christian texts, um, from a literary point of view, I will often use the word heathen Mm -hmm. because in English, the word heathen is so obviously biased. It's like saying Satanist or heretic, um, that everybody knows that I'm not being, I'm not trying to be objective. I'm talking about the image of traditional religion from the perspective of a monastic author who believes that these people are primitive and dangerous and things like that. So I will use the word heathen in those circumstances if I'm talking about the Christian image of native religion. If I'm talking myself about uh, Egyptian religion in the third or fourth century, then I'm going to probably use the word uh, traditional Egyptian religion or traditional religion in the area of Oxyrhynchus. And of course, what I mean by that is there are multiple kinds of cults. There are Egyptian cults with Hellenistic 
iconography. There are very traditional Egyptian cults. There are uh, Roman gods. And so I might talk about Roman religion in the area of Oxyrhynchus, but I'm being more precise in coming up with these words than anybody who's going to use the word pagan. Um, the word pagan is just a, a false and uh, deceptive um, uh, generalization. And I, I, I don't let my graduate students use that word at all. Yeah, okay. I, I don't like the word um, either, but I wanted to know your, your opinion on this. Um, and how did the, the process of Christianization um, that you talk so much about influence the pre-Christian or um, let's say traditional Egyptian magical practices and vice versa? And uh, how are we to imagine this process? Oh, it's very complicated and there have been some very good, very good uh, books about this. Um, I would say that um, there are very, there's ways in which the craftspeople and the scribes who were composing Christian amulets often used as frameworks um, formulas and formulations and strategies that were traditional to writing practices in earlier Egyptian tradition. It's not that one scribe said, oh, here's a Christian thing and I'm going to mix it with an Egyptian thing and then I have a kind of perfectly mix, a perfect mixture that everyone's going to like. It's that when you're a scribe or when you're a craftsman, you have ways of, of thinking about the representation of power or the, the deployment of power uh, using using words, using symbols, using formulas, using invocations, and those are going to carry over. On the other hand, there, there are very, very clear features of magical texts, amulets, that come from the Christian tradition, like the use of, of um, scripture, the use of gospel stories, the use of uh, nomina sacra, so that this would be the uh, kind of Christian contribution, but I would say that that in the in the developing tradition of amulet making in Christian Egypt, there is a strong legacy from earlier scribal traditions. This is what um, Theodore Breen writes about in his book Making Am Amulets Christian. Can you elaborate on your understanding of the term syncretism? Um, I am aware that you have been advocating for the use of the term as, as others have, uh, even though others uh, would like to abandon it. What's your position on this? The way I use it is very close to the term acculturation or indigenization. Syncretism is the process of rendering a an uh, a, a new idea or a new saint or a new formula in traditional recognizable terms so that um, the representation of I, just using one example I, I wrote about um, the representation of the cross not as the 
thing that Jesus was crucified on, but as a, a visual power that repels the demons of the desert. So here is a way that that uh, the cross becomes powerful in the way that that earlier Egyptian gods were powerful. And so it's it's really the the assimilation, the cultural assimilation of of a Christian symbol. Well, I, I mean, in some ways, magical texts are a very good corpus for this because you see how a story of of Jesus healing somebody becomes a a little charm that can be recited or worn, and it becomes uh, relevant to people seeking healing. So seeking healing, of course, is not unique to any particular culture, but it it, it is the idiom in which uh, villagers think about the relevance and meaning of a particular religion. So this is a very different use of syncretism, this kind of process of indigenization, very different concept of syncretism from the classic way of thinking about syncretism as the mixture of two different religious systems. The problem with that the problem with the classic idea of syncretism is that it always assumes pure religious systems like pure Christianity, pure pharaonic Egyptian, pure Greek or something like that. And these pure traditions never really existed. So you're always dealing with with traditions that are in the process of being transformed, in the process of being indigenized, in the process of being translated and interpreted. And for me, syncretism is talking about the way in which religious forms become authoritative and powerful in the local domain. That makes it very clear. So it also has to do with recontextualization, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. Mm-hmm. We're, we're in a better position talking about the syncretism involved in a particular text or a particular mm-hmm art object or a particular ritual expression, female figurines as an example of of syncretism in late antique Egypt, because here you have Christian authority being mediated in for for pilgrims at Apamena, for example, and other places, through the means of female figurines. Now, the female figurines are quite different from the female figurines from 400 years earlier in Egypt, but there's still uh, the use of a distinctively Egyptian medium to to make Christianity relevant. So that's the way I, I I would think about it. One of the most important terms that you use is, of course, historiola. And can you explain this term? Um, yeah, the, like like syncretism, I've written about historiola, and, and um, I'm going to refer uh, <laughs> the, the listeners to the writings because I'm much more careful and clear, I think, when mm-hmm. I write about these things. But historiola is a kind of of charm 
um, a verbal charm that's very often written down where a story is told or a little bit of a story and it is meant to alleviate or resolve some kind of situation very often a healing situation in this world and the um and the figures in the story are mythical figures um they're either gods or christian heroes or biblical heroes from from the old testament and the efficacy the power in reciting the historiola comes from the fact that in the myth or the mythology the the the, the total mythology um uh something has happened completely a situation has been resolved so that when you recite that little bit of the story in this world to heal somebody you are, you are invoking that myth into this world not just the myth but also the the closure that the myth offered so the historiola becomes a way of channeling mythical power into this world and so um historiolae are most often simply a recitation of they don't um uh use grammar to to refer it to a situation in this world it'll be like uh marketa was walking with jesus one day and they met uh john the baptist and uh marketa said i'm suffering and john the baptist said why and jesus said there's no reason you should suffer if you um say the the trisagion three times and uh rub uh sacred oil on your forehead you will no longer suffer end of story <laughs> end mm -hmm. of historiola that would be the that would be an example yeah thanks very much for my own personal uh, historiola <laughs> right um so as as you know we can see through this conversation terms concepts theory theoretical issues play a large part in your scientific contribution uh and why should a student or researcher become familiar with more theoretical thinking and where should one start well i think the the biggest reason why why um people who want to study these materials should really take very seriously theory is that if they don't if they if they think they're just going to study it on philological terms or philological grounds what they're going to end up doing and what they will end up doing is channeling very old fashioned assumptions about magic about religion about culture about christianity um and those and those are our assumptions that come from protestant christianity that come from uh the works of fraser from the enlightenment um they're just extremely old fashioned and you really won't be in conversation with with um the larger study of magic and you won't be um advancing the field when i teach a, my course on um on the theory of magical texts and how to study magical texts we read um malinowski because malinowski shows you what how how magic functions in performance and in life and although he for example 
distinguishes magic and religion, he still gives a very strong sense of the crisis aspect of most magical texts, healing, uh, jealousy, frustration, anger, things like that. Um, I also have students read what's called speech acts theory. And this is the, uh, the famous book by uh, J.L. Austin from the 60s and Searle, John Searle from the 70s. And it's about how words and formulas can actually change reality so that that when we when we say some things in certain ways, we're actually doing things with those words that words aren't just kind of like historical text, like like some uh, just a text They're They're actually doing things. And I also have students read more generally about how charms work, about the the ego, the I in the charm, the first person singular, and how that becomes a different type of voice from the actual historical ritual expert. On the other hand, it's very important to understand um, comparatively how ritual experts, so-called magicians, but I don't like the term magician, ritual experts, especially literate ritual experts, people who can actually write and read and also uh, perform, how how they function in societies in which they've been observed. So this involves reading ethnography. I use ethnography of, of modern Ethiopia, um, but also more recent history, medieval and early modern history. Uh, Keith Thomas's book, uh, Religion and the Decline of Magic, which is about England, or uh, Robin Briggs' book, uh, Witches and Neighbors, which is about uh, uh, Southern France in the medieval period. And they talk about kind of observable traditions of magic. So I'm a big advocate for comparison because I don't think that there's some thing called magic, which is a recognizable feature of of society before actually deriving it from comparison. So yes, I think that, you know, without these kinds of theoretical works, you don't have uh, a good sense of what you're talking about. One of your biggest contributions to the study of the topic um, of magic has been making ancient traditions easy to picture in our minds, imagining the individuals involved. Uh, how do you do this? Is there any specific process you take when approaching a magical item, a made be a text or an object, and how do you tell its story? Certain things are easier than others. Um, with papyri, like the papyrus from that with the uh, the fetus, the brephos, that was a little bit easier because there was a lot of detail. It was a it was a, a complaint against uh, somebody who was who was uh, using sorcery to capture his harvest. And there, um, there were a number of things that interested me in this in the text, which suggested we could bring to life uh, a number of different motivations, circumstances, and craftsmanship, and, and zero in on this. So I would say that's more an example of social history. When I've been writing about 
about female figurines, I have no texts whatsoever. There's nothing, no te- nothing except for archaeology sheds light on these materials. And so there I have to very carefully propose ways in which these materials would have been crafted, would have been used, would have been meaningful, would have been chosen. One of the things I found very interesting about female figurines was that that there's such a variety of them, which means you could, at, at one cult site, you could you could choose between three or four different forms. And I'm very interested what what goes into that choice. So when you ask questions like what goes into choice, you you end up with options or or you end up you end up thinking about how a woman who wants to get pregnant is thinking about her body as represented in a figurine and then what she's going to do with the figurine. And then I thought to myself, well, what how do you bring these, you know, if you bring these home instead of leaving them as ex votos at a cult site, uh, what, what, what would you do with them at home? Where would you put them? Would you bring them out only at certain saints' days? So it's really kind of thinking very seriously about an artifact and all the options of using them. So, so I would say uh, just taking seriously the fact that every one of these objects we casually put under magic, every one of those things had a place in someone's historical life and was moved around and involved uh, consultation and showing it to other people, consultation with other people and moving through the landscape and thinking about your body. All of those things go into it. And it's in it's in thinking very broadly that way that you begin to um, to give life to these materials. And I would say that the most important stimula- stimulation for this has been reading comparatively. That if you haven't read about the use of charms and sorcery and magical texts and rumors in small French villages and Moroccan villages and modern Egyptian villages, if you haven't acquainted yourself with that, you're not going to have the imagination to put these things in uh, everyday life. We talked about this a little bit, but what role do more contemporary sources uh, play for the reconstruction of ancient traditions? And in particular, uh, can you elaborate on how you came uh, to compare the, let's say, Coptic magician or Coptic ritual specialist with the Deptera, or and how to use Robert Redfield's concept of little and great traditions in your writing? Um, yeah, so I, of course, I think that uh, contemporary sources are extremely important. Um, this is this actually is where I have learned a lot from uh, Jonathan Z. Smith and his writings, um, not just the ones on magic, but the ones on comparison as well, like just taking Coptic ritual specialists in the Deptera, I was trying to think of people who would be perhaps on the margins of a religious institution or a monastery. They would be very, um, they would they would be literate. They would be very familiar with liturgical tradition. 
and yet they would feel very free about experimenting with names, with perhaps other gods, making up angelic names, making up demonic names. And I was um, thinking about this, like, who, who were these people? They're not not Christian. They're part of the part of the Christian or monastic uh, world, broadly conceived, but they seem to have some kind of independent culture. When I say independent, that is a culture that doesn't come up in, for example, hagiography and other monastic uh, literature. And then I stumbled upon the book by the French author Jacques Mercier, and uh, two of his books on on Ethiopian healing magic uh, were translated into English, and they and they just caught my eye. Um, uh, our bookstores in America, unfortunately, do not have a lot of French books, and so very often the things that you're going to kind of find at a used bookstore are uh, going to be in English. But Jacques Mercier's work has been absolutely crucial for me because he not only moves through a series of texts, these Coptic, heal, these uh, Ethiopian healing t- texts, which have a strong re- uh, resemblance to Coptic magical texts, but he goes into much detail on the Deptera and the culture of the Depteras and how they are on the margins of of Coptic Christian culture and how people view them as being sorcerers and being demon worshipers sometimes and they they don't really respect them and yet they're very important in many aspects and so i this got me much more interested in Deptera and i've 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 read much broad there've been uh, articles in ethnographic journals about Depteras and when I was in Ethiopia, I asked about Depteras and did my own kind of interviews, not with Depteras. I never met a Deptera. Mm-hmm. But this this helped a lot. And I want to be clear that in the comparison, and this, this is always important when you are using ethnography to model some type of hypothetical context, it's very important to see the differences between Depteras and and the Coptic uh, ritual specialists. For one thing, there is a word, Deptera. There is a category of people. You don't have that in Egypt. We don't know what category of person was writing these things. Um, for another thing, uh, Coptic, ma- uh, Ethiopian magical texts, there's much more of, of fluidity between Ethiopian magical iconography and icons and these healing texts so there's a special interest in the power of the eyes of angels you don't have that as much in um, coptic texts so there's a lot of difference in the strategies and in the culture but we can say that this might be a plausible model for thinking about the culture of Coptic magical texts where we also see a great exchange and a transmission of traditions, for example, the Mary Ad Bartos traditions um, that that seem to kind of structure these these, uh, magical texts from from one century to the next. So that that would be how I how I 
talk about the use of of contemporary ethnography. Um, the Great and the Little Tradition is a way of thinking about the relationship between local religion in its various formations and what we might call the institutional tradition. The problem with using that that uh, dichotomy is that people often, what I would say, reify the dichotomy. So there is an actual great tradition and there is an actual local tradition when in fact Redfield saw interchange at every level. But one of the one of the interesting things about thinking in these terms, Redfield developed great and little tradition to talk about Mexico in the early 20th century, the relationship between Christian and Mayan traditions. His students took it to Guatemala, took it to India, took it to um, uh, William Christian's work in um, in uh, early modern Spain. So it's been it's been demonstrated to work in a lot of different cultures. And what we see is a very interesting dialectic that institutional traditions of, for example, Mary become highly localized in, for example, Coptic magical texts and shrines in Egypt. At the same time, fairly local or regional saints like Menas, for example, become almost international in their scope. So people are coming to the, the Menas cult in Egypt from Alexandria and beyond. So it's real, the great and the little tradition is a dialectic. It's a way of, of framing a relationship between institutional tradition, scriptural tradition, and on the other hand, the local traditions, uh, the local agencies, the local interests in uh, Egypt or anywhere else. And last question, are there any unexplored areas in ancient magical studies, something that you think is really untouched? Well, it has been touched, and it um, what I'm thinking about is iconography. Mm. Um, the problem is that Coptic magical text people have been, and I would say this for uh, people who work on, on the magical bowls in um, Syro-Palestine as well, there's a kind of a deference to, to art historians. We haven't really figured out a good approach to thinking about magical iconography. There's the descriptive approach, and this is what Bonner uses, and this is what Delat and Deschamps use, and this is what uh, people who talk about the demons and magical bowls talk about. You just describe things. But yeah, how magical iconography in texts is supposed to work, that has not yet, we don't have a methodology for that yet. I'm hoping to work a little bit more on that as uh, as years go by. Uh, great, I'm looking forward to that. Um, thanks very much for answering all my questions and for this very interesting conversation. Great, good. For more information on our um, Coptic Magical Papyri project, please visit our website on www.coptic-magic.phil, that is P-H-I-L, dot uni, U-N-I, dash, Würzburg, spelled W-U-E-R-Z-B-U-R-G, dot D-E. It should um, pop up when you Google Coptic Magical Papyri. 
Thank you very much for listening once again and see you next time.